Morning. What a magnificent morning. Isn't this a beautiful day? It's so good to see all of you here. And for those of you who are our visitors, we want you to know how welcome you really are. We love to have friends come and worship our God together. And the moment you walk into our church, you're one of us, and we want you to feel truly that you're at home in our worship. There is a secret ingredient to life. We often hear that said about food, a secret ingredient that makes one food better than others. We hear it said about products, a product that has a secret ingredient that makes it superior to other like products. But about life, it's true. There is a secret ingredient without which life never rises above the commonplace. When possessed, life has no limit. Let's look at what makes us the persons we are. We are the persons that we become because of heredity. Heredity is simply those characteristics that are passed on to us from our parents. Everything is affected by heredity. Plants, animals, and especially persons. We take on characteristics that our parents possessed. We take on the outward appearance. We're tall, we're short. We have one color of eyes, one color of hair, dependent upon who our parents are, and we can't do anything to alter that. We have mental capacities that come from our parents. We are limited or we are expanded in our mental capacities according to the parents that bore us. Through heredity, we develop particular attributes, the gift of music, the gift of art. Those characteristics that make us the unique persons that we are come in a great measure from the parents who bore us. A patient said to his doctor, tell me one thing that I can do that will assure me the greatest possibility of a long and healthy life. And the doctor quickly answered, choose your parents well. Much of our health depends upon the parents that bore us. Because through heredity, the propensity towards certain illnesses or even the Developing of certain illnesses come about through heredity. Genes, that magic touch that allows us to live forever through our offspring in the passing on of characteristics. And so we become the persons that we are through heredity. The parents who gave us life. But it doesn't stop there. We become the persons that we are because of the environment in which we are reared. So much of who we are 
comes from the fact that we came out of certain environments. It's been said so often that parents who abused their children were abused children themselves. And a husband or a wife that abuses a spouse so often came from a family where spouse abuse was a part of their growing up. And we know that alcoholics so often come from alcoholic families. It's the environment in which we grow up that says so much about the persons that we become. Making it of great importance that we who rear children and have responsibility for nurturing them have to provide an environment in which they can grow, in which they see the very best in those about, in which they have examples set before them. Environment plays a great part in the persons that we become. But that's not all. Personal response plays a great part. In spite of what we might become through our inheritance, through our environment, in the last analysis, it depends upon what we choose to do and who we choose to be. In every instance, we have the choice of yes or no. We hear so often the, slow, the slogan these days, say no to drugs. Say no to the many social vices that are all about us. We have the choice. We can say yes or no. We can refuse or we can accept. Jesus taught us that we ought to be sensitive to the choices that we make because it is in the choices that we make that determines to a great extent the persons that we ultimately become. And so we are. At the end of life, we are nothing more than the repository of the choices that we have made from the time of our childhood through all of the years of our living. Personal response, how we react, how we choose. And that's a part of what makes us the persons that we are. So here it is. We are all the product of our inheritance, our environment, and our personal response. And so many of us stop here. We never progress toward personhood beyond those three areas out of which growth comes. And when life stops here, it's never fulfilled. It's always disappointing. But there is a secret ingredient. Paul called it a gift, a gift from God. After we have experienced everything that can be ours in the world about, there's one dimension more. It's what God gives us that we cannot earn. We cannot find in any other way just a direct gift from God. These are the gifts of the Spirit. We don't often talk about those and what a tragedy it is that we don't. This is what makes the difference in living. This is what lifts us from the commonplace into the ultimate. Accepting 
God's gifts, and they come merely from accepting them as God offers them. And they make all the difference in the world. Each of us in plotting out our lives seek one thing above everything else, and that is inner peace. If we do not have inner peace, it doesn't matter what else we have. Life will not be full. It won't be beneficial. We'll be unhappy all the days of our lives. And the great pilgrimage of those who have failed in life is the fact that they have failed to reach the one thing that makes life worthwhile, and that is inner peace. Inner peace comes from a great struggle. The greatest battlefield in all the world is the battlefield within our breast, where we battle realities, possibilities, defeats, fantasies. It's the place where we come to terms with life and with God and too many of us desert that battlefield, giving it over to the enemy, trying to win the battle on the outside. It can't be done. Now there's a word for the kind of peace that the world gives. When Jesus came to the end of his life, he said, My peace I leave unto you, not as the world gives, but the gift that he alone would give. Too many of us seek the world peace, and there's a word for it. It can be had. It's nirvana. It is that peace that comes from dulling our senses so that we're no longer pricked to possibilities, so that no longer there is an urge to better it is that time of coming to terms with things the way they are, never sensing anything better. And that is the most tragic level to which one can descend in his living. It is that level that is elevated in Buddhism. In Buddhism, if you can achieve nirvana, you have to achieve the ultimate. And it is simply the fact that you can sit under a tree and no longer be hungry for beauty, no longer yearn for love, no longer have a desire for the ultimate, but you see things the way they are and become content with them. The Buddha lived 500 years before Christ. He was reared in a sheltered home. He was the son of a Raja, a prince of India. He was shielded from all of the poverty and the distress in the outside world as he was reared in the home with tutors, carried only to those places that were beautiful, peopled by persons like himself. But Gautama grew up. One day he left his palatial home and went out into the village, and he looked into the faces of starving people. He saw people walking about in rags. He heard beggars crying for alms, and he was stunned by it all. He did not know that a world like this existed. He had been protected from it, and he went home, and he couldn't shake it from his mind. He struggled how to come to terms with all of this. 
And so at an early age, he left home in search of peace. He sought it by practicing yoga. Many today practice yoga to find peace. That is simply bringing your mind and your spirit under domination by physical control. He tried that. But peace didn't come. He tried fasting. But peace didn't come. He tried isolation. He became a hermit. But peace didn't come. And the years were passing. And he was growing more and more discontent with life that had so much suffering in the world about him. And he had no way to break through. And one day he suddenly remembered there was a day in his childhood when he sat under a tree in contemplation. And he remembered on that day as he sat and contemplated, there swept over him a kind of peace that he had not known before. And so the idea struck, there is the source of peace. And so he went into contemplation. He sought out a tree by a creek side and there he sat. He folded his legs, he folded his arms, and he began to stare out on one object, thinking, contemplating, and the time passed, and suddenly nirvana came. He was no longer concerned about the hungry people that lay along the streets. He no longer felt pangs for those who were suffering illnesses, leprosy. He no longer yearned for that which was sublime. He was content. He had found nirvana. And the world is peopled with those who are content to be insensitive. And it is a peace that comes from no longer caring. The world gives that kind of peace. Out of it, Buddha did make four great discoveries. The four noble truths, he called them. If you just won't go any further, you've got a great foundation here. These were truths that he came to perceive. One is that suffering is a part of everyone's life. And the greatest suffering is that suffering that comes from yearning for pleasure and searching for pleasure causes us to find our pleasure in material things. And suddenly we've discovered that we are slaves to those material things which give us pleasure. And his fourth truth was, there are eight steps of discipline that you follow to find nirvana. Stop with the third and you've got a good basis for beginning. But he doesn't stop there. And it goes too far. But that's where many of us stop, trying to find peace in pleasure in things until we become slaves to things. There's another word, shalom. Nirvana is peace that comes from the world. Shalom is the peace that comes from God. There was an Indian who lived in this century, 
who yearned for peace the way that the Buddha had yearned for peace. And he had been reared in the Buddha faith, but it did not give him the kind of fulfillment he chose. His mother died in his early years, and he, lacking her loving and her caring, grew up trying to discover something of worth outside of himself. At the age of 14, he became disillusioned with life. <clears throat> he had read all of the books on religion. He had tried all of the experiments, and still he was restless and unhappy. On his 15th birthday, he decided he would end it all. He would find his peace in death. There was a train that rolled by his house at 5.30 in the morning, and he thought the quickest way to do it is to leap in front of the train just as it passes by. And so that morning he arose earlier than usual. He prepared himself for going down to the railroad tracks and taking his life. But before he left his room, he remembered words of a missionary that had said that you can always speak to God whenever you don't know what course of action to take, and God will answer. He had never tried it. He had tried only everything in his own religion, but here, just before taking his life, he decided that he would try this one last thing, and so he began to pray, and suddenly a light filled the room. He said, I saw a vision of Christ, and he told me that he could make all things well. And I accepted that word, he said. He rushed into his father's room and he said, Father, I've become a Christian. And his father denounced him for making such a statement in that house. They were true practitioners of their religion and the word of Christ had no place there. But he had found what his searching had not brought to him. And so his father put him out of the home told him he could either recant the Christian faith or he could leave home. And so he left home and he spent the first night under the shelter of a tree. It was cold. He trembled. He was filled with fear. And at the same time, there was a peace that swept over him. He didn't give up what he had found. And so he began living the life of one who followed Christ in India. They came to call him the St. Francis of India because he put only the, the robe of a sandhu on, the poorest of the holy men. And he walked around all of India, caressing the lonely, caring for those marked with leprosy, finding food for those who were hungering. Everywhere he went, he was taking care of those who had nothing. He especially dwelt among the untouchables. He who had been born in a home of wealth, his father was an aristocrat, and yet he fell down to the lowliest estate in their caste. He became an untouchable for the sake of the untouchables. He came to America America was a Christian nation. He wanted to know more about it. His missionary had come from America, but he was appalled at what he found here. He said the people were 
swallowed up in wealth and luxury while millions in his homeland were dying of hunger and no one cared. And he threw off America as quickly as he could to go back to his homeland, India. Sandu Sudu Song, the St. Francis of India who found his peace in Christ. He decided he hadn't done enough. He would take Christ to those in the Himalayas who were seeking to find contentment and peace the way that he had sought it and had failed. He set out to climb the Himalayas, 19,000 feet of climbing, and he climbed until he came to Tibet. And there he tried to take the word of Christ to the Tibetans, those who had followed the Buddha. He came to those priests who in seeking nirvana had so often entombed themselves, living in tiny cells, some living in darkness from their earliest years until the time of their dying, never looked upon the sunshine, never saw the face of a flower, living in darkness, a tiny hole in the side of their cells through which food would be passed to them, fearing that if they broke out of their cells, they would lose their concentration upon nirvana. He wept for the poor people of Tibet who did not know the peace that he had. He came back out of the Himalayas, walked among the lepers, the untouchables, telling of Christ's love. Finally, he grew old, as all do. The year was 1929, and the sadhu decided that he would pay the ultimate price before his death he would climb again the Himalayas to the people of Tibet. He left his home, his friends, aware of the fact that now he was stooped, his heart pained at times, he breathed erratically, but he was determined. And they watched him disappear in the mist as he climbed the great peaks of the Himalayas, never to be seen again. He found shalom in a world of nirvana. But that was India. That was generations ago. What about today? This is a new world. This is a revolutionary world we're living in. Is not nirvana and shalom outdated? Are we not living at a time when we can receive all that we're searching for in the realm of science and physics? and the realm of the nuclear discoveries of our world? Ask Gert Bahena. Gert Bahena is a contemporary of ours who was born in wealth, lived in wealth, had everything that anybody would want that wealth could bring, and the most unhappy person in the world. She went through three marriages just like she was buying a new outfit. She had children, and then she hired governesses to take care of the children, and she never knew the joy of mother love. She said, I got up in the morning, and I took a pill to stimulate me. I drank alcohol all through the day to keep me going, and then I took a sleeping pill to let me go to sleep at night. And those were the years that she lived. A fine home, great wealth, and loneliness and unhappiness 
She was 53 years old when out of her desperation she turned to Christ and he came to her as he does to all of us when we let him. She said, for the first time in my life, I held a Bible in my hands. I had never even held a Bible in my hands until I was 53 years old. And she said, I opened it up and started reading and I couldn't put it down. I read and I read and my heart warmed, my life expanded. I had to tell everybody about it and I couldn't wait until Sunday came. I wanted to go to church. I'd never been to church in my entire life. And she said, Sunday came and I started out and the closer I got, the more fearful I became. What will I do? These are people who've known all their lives what I've just found. I'll be so small among them. Will they even accept me? And she walked into the church and she sat down. And when the service was over, she left and not one person spoke to her. And she said, I was glad to get out because I was in a building of unhappy people. They didn't have the joy I had. They didn't have the sense of expectancy that flooded me. I looked into their faces and they were as unhappy as the people I saw in stores and on the street. And I couldn't understand it. But she said, I had it myself and I wasn't about to let that destroy my faith. And she said, as the years passed, she came to discover that not everybody has allowed the gifts to come. They're Christians in their hearts, but they're Christian only in the sense of not depending upon the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit to make their lives full and meaningful. And thus she no longer passed judgment upon those that didn't have it. She felt only sorrow that they had missed it. She was allowed to live more than 20 years to tell about the joy that she had found. And death came to her only recently. She was invited by Sam Shoemaker to speak at Calvary Episcopal Church in Philadelphia to tell the people there of her experience. 500 people were there and she said, I couldn't speak to anybody. I never made a speech in my life. And I, of all people, was not equipped to speak, but she said, I had to tell it. It was burning in my soul. And she said, I trembled. I had a manuscript in front of me, and I never took my eyes off the manuscript. And when I left the pulpit, I almost fainted. But the people had listened. They realized I had experienced something that many of them hadn't. And I got another invitation to speak, and I filled it. But then she said, I got an invitation from Yale University. I was to speak at their chapel, and I was to be the first woman ever to speak at their chapel. And all the fears came up again. I didn't know if I could go through with it or not, because these are the kind of people I had lived with all my life. The wealthy, the professionals. What would they say when I got up to speak? Would they condemn me? Would they denounce me? Would they make me feel uncomfortable? And she said, I was about to back out when I suddenly realized I haven't let God in on this. And she said, I stopped where I was and I said, God, you've given me the gifts that I've needed for everything I've tried. 
now give me the gift of peace that I can walk up to that podium and say what I've got to say without fear, without trembling, with poise. And she said, suddenly it all fell away. I had tried every gimmick, but now God did it. And she said, I walked up to the podium, I threw away my manuscript, and I began to speak for the first time from myself. And it was the easiest thing I've ever done. And when I walked away, they gave me an ovation. And I've never had a problem again of standing up and telling the people what God had done for me. She found shalom, the peace that comes from God. So here we are. The world has promised us peace, but if it comes by the world alone, it's nirvana, a loss of sensitivity to the things that we once yearned for. But the gift that comes from God, that secret ingredient to life, is the gift of peace that comes from God and nowhere else. And now this. Shalom to each of you. Amen.